Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. Today, we tick two more realizations off the list we began in the last episode, that your relationships are not really nourishing you, and that your parenting was far worse than you thought. These realizations are proving to be rich discussion topics filled with rabbit holes galore. My favorite of these is how the existence of a cookie still has the power to collapse the Catholic Church if just one of their leaders could think paradigmatically. Fascinating stuff. Paradigmatic thinking, as we discuss, includes critical thinking, but critical thinking doesn't necessarily include paradigmatic thinking. I mentioned a Christopher Hitchens video in the podcast, by the way, and I included a link to that if you're interested in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Greetings and welcome forward, everybody. This is 67, I think. I got the last one wrong. I had to put a little thing in the thing. You know how it works, a little piece of text in it. But Uh uh, I'm pretty sure we're at 67 now. Uh, Welcome, Stace. Thanks for being here. You betcha. We're going to talk about our second realization today on the random list of it's currently 17. There'll probably be more. And that realization is last time we covered that your unconscious is significantly running your life, which is a big one, maybe the biggest of all of them, which is why it was number one. Um, But this is also a big one that is a sort of downstream sequelae, I believe is singular. Sequelae, yes. Uh Yes, thank you. That your closest relationships don't actually nourish you. Where should we begin about that? Well, it's uh, certainly a, a challenging uh, statement uh, mm-hmm. for those who haven't would not have heard that before. Um, these realizations, of course, are what we we would unfold as you do this um, work in identity and action. Technically, all three hoods, but mostly in personhood, uh, mm-hmm. they they start to unruffle or unfold that way. So, if we say that um, our closest relationships don't actually nourish us. Um, what we we mean in the most meta way of starting the discussion is that uh, your closest relationship, your first closest relationship, never actually nourished you. Mm-hmm. That's with your parents. Oh, I haven't. I don't. I don't remember hearing that connection before. No, I don't think I, I've heard I, you say it that way. That makes a lot I, of sense. I, ne- I never have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's like. Um, our closest relationships recapitulate the closeness dynamic we had with our, our parents uh, in our childhood where we couldn't escape. As adults, of course, we can always leave a close relationship if it gets too problematic, if we choose. Um, but uh, um, when there's emotional dystrophy imparted by insufficient uh, emotive presence in parents, uh, that's never going to f- give the child the love food uh, uh, he or she needs to be fulfilled. In that sense, as we recapitulate that as adults with close relationships, that same inadequacy of being fe- um, being fed comes forward because we had to form unconscious defenses against that inadequacy to match our parents' mental first or body first or uh, a will first uh, dynamics that they lost in their childhood, the emotive they lost. So they had to learn how to relate to their parents through mind or will or physicality. 
So in that sense, um, uh, until we heal our childhood closeness relationship, our first taste of human relationality, it's the template for every other relationality we ever uh, inhabit downstream, especially the closest. So mm -hmm. those defenses against the pain of not being emotionally fed, em emotively emotionally fed in childhood will carry over to intimate relationships and close friendships such that we'll have to deconstruct the defenses that were formed in childhood unconsciously. As adults, maybe we can become more conscious because if we uh, of those defenses, if we deconstruct those, we are technically giving ourselves a second childhood by its work in intimate relationships, which is the most excruciatingly uh, patent uh, mm -hmm. dynamic bandwidth to match the to childhood woundings. And this is a good example of where um, mainstream psychology and even mainstream society has a often an understanding that we tend to attract partners that are recapitulations of our parents. and down to the kind of love like you know uh love for me was i'm not saying me personally well no actually i am in this case okay. <laughs> I'm say, love for me was being ignored mostly by my father and on my mother's side being sort of like someone too close but also subtly criticizing all the time and so i've tend to uh, tended to attract mostly women that were like my mother not like my father but i, I was going to say that generally um, because that's a common one for people, but we're sure. conditioned to, to the very nature of what we're taught love is, which is inevitably not what it is, which is, I don't know if that's on this list of realizations that love is not what you thought it was, but that should be on here too. Yeah, I guess we could. Well, I like number 18. That would be a good one. But uh, yeah, I add. <laughs> I'll put that in. Yeah. Um, yeah. That love's not what you think. And you've thought you've been feeling it and boy, uh, not nearly as much as you thought you could. Um, right. so right. yeah, we're, we're, we grow up inside our conditioning around what love is and then complain about our partners, but that's the kind of love we unconsciously chose Yes, and actually need because what you, what you find is when you get on the other side of that, taking yeah. in real love is actually more challenging than dealing with the shitty kind. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're like frogs in, in water, uh, boiling water. You drop a frog in a pot of boiling water, they die instantly. But if you start cold and warm it up gradually, they acclimate uh, and they don't die when it gets almost to boiling until it gets to boiling. Mm -hmm. They don't suffer. Um, same thing for us. We get so inured to inadequate form of love that we were conditioned to feel was love. But actually, as you said, when you get on the other side of it, you realize there's nowhere near what, what it really means to love and be loved. Uh, hooking on to that directly, Joseph, um, is why identity takes such a strong uh, off or brings such a strong offering that none of us need to learn how to love better. Most of us know how to love from our soul it kind of goes around our defenses and at least we know how to to love that way in some bandwidths but what's missing is we've never been taught that that what we're but what we're supposed to we don't know how to do is let someone love us mm. uh, because the defenses that arose because parents couldn't give us that emotionally soul deep emotional soulful uh, nourishment bandwidth 
Um, the defense keeps us from uh, vulnerabilizing to be loved. If we learn, let ourselves learn to be loved by processing the unconscious defenses, automatically we will, our, our bandwidth of love sobriety going out of us is going to deepen and increase. Um, but our soulful love that we can, you know, love basically uh, uh, from the uh, outside and around. Um, uh, around it, the protections. It, Yes, around the mm -hmm. protections still can happen because protections can't protect against our soul essence, only some of their closening vulnerable versions. So all of these things are related to that realization that um, uh, if you think you're really fulfilled in your closest uh, relationship, whatever that is, friendship or uh, intimacy, um, wow, does identity have uh, offer a possibility that's not fun to get to, but a life changer to discover what love actually can feel like when you learn to be strong enough to be vulnerable, which we weren't strong enough to be vulnerable when we were kids. I think of the very common example of people who, for example, go into um, Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking, and then suddenly they lose all of their drinking buddies. Yes. And we have... We have this phrase like, well, they were never really your friends anyway, or that other phrase, you find out who your friends really are. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different domains in which that happens where like you change a behavior or a value or something, uh, and then you sort of find out who your friends are. And um, how does this relate to friendship? That's a different application of the well, nourishment. Yeah. Um most of the time, but not always, uh, there's more co-signing uh, of our, our junk and intimacy and a little less co-signing our junk with each other with good friends. There was sometimes uh, that added, that added, added sexuality really uh, closes the, or really um, recapitulates all the way, the closeness we felt with our parents. Uh, the only version of it that gets anywhere near is when we're, when we sexualize our, um, our uh, connections, hopefully with fourth chakra operating at least somehow, not just second, second, you know, second only based sexual uh, relationships aren't really relationships. They're just body relatednesses. Um, and so they don't really, <laughs> They don't really count. A lot of people use second chakra-driven um, sexual relatednesses uh, to avoid uh, feeling uh, ever ever coming to the point where they realize they don't know how to be vulnerable. Sexualizing is the number one um, medication for blocking vulnerability uh, in in a deeper form of relationship. So that doesn't mean there's any such thing as sin for having a casual second chakra based relationship. It's just identity would say you're only working on, you're only firing on uh, six cylinders on the 12 cylinder engine calls your heart soul. It's, so. a, it's embarrassing for me to admit. So that means it would be good for me to admit it um, until probably my early twenties. Yeah. 20 until about 22 from, you know, whatever, 16 to 22, I did a lot of, um, having sex with women and then realizing I didn't like them uh, mm -hmm. because I just could not, 
I had was completely confused about like, oh, I'm really into this person. And then we'd have sex like, oh, now I'm not really into this person anymore. <laughs> and it took me a lot of, uh, dare, I don't want to use the word practice, trial and error, a lot of mistakes um, to finally realize like, I think I have some confusion about this because, uh, yeah, connection was sexual, overly sexualized for me as it is surely for, for many men. But uh, when yeah. I look back on that now, it's like, oh, man, how confused was I? Like, I just think because someone turned me on, I must want to relate with them and am relating with them. And that's just not what's going on. Well, Joseph, uh, I'd like to reflect back to you that uh, <laughs> it is extraordinary that a 16 to 22 or 23 year old would have such a realization because oh, no, I didn't have the realization then. Oh, <laughs> no, oh no, okay. no, I'm sorry. I'm I mean, I'm I realized well, that, at, you know, mid 20s, late 20s at the earliest. Well, but still, I, I, I can still show you some uh, uh, non shade here um, mm. because uh uh, we're supposed to learn what our bodies yeah. do in that age frame. And so we're, even if there, we had no childhood wounding, we would inevitably, um, a little less probably, but still have to experiment with people we didn't really know how to get close to in the heart to learn what our bodies can do and they can't do. Sure. So. But I heard a lot of women who did not realize that that's what we were doing, nor was that what I was sort of, um, putting out there, so to speak. Uh, you know, so it's one thing. It's like, imagine if we had education about that, where it's like, hey, yeah. you're young, you're experimenting. Right. This is what relating is. This is what sexuality is. They're different. You can yes. put them together or not. Yes. Uh -huh. See how conscious you can be about doing that. I had no framework. We, we get no <clears throat> framework whatsoever, whatsoever about that. We could have gotten that in eighth grade health. That would have been a great time. But instead, we're taught 26,000 different ways how to that we should be abstinent and never use drugs, which nobody listens to. <laughs> Oh yeah, that that works in both domains, doesn't it? Uh, is Nancy what did Nancy Reagan say? You know, just say no. Just know? obviously, yeah. Just say no. Just control your behavior using I'm language. Just, yeah, exactly. Using language. <laughs> well, I, I, I did worse. Um, I'll, I'll see you and raise you here. Yeah. Um, I had the opposite, which had even worse pain to women. Uh, uh, I didn't have that many lovers uh, because I never dated. I mated. Mm. I, I couldn't get close sexually with uh, a woman until I felt something either spiritually or something in the heart or some combination of, I just couldn't do it. I, I, I couldn't get erect unless I felt something. Mm -hmm. Now that that's its own kind of torture. Uh, my first girl, real girlfriend. Best uh, one of the best Stace trivia facts, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to hear right now. This is the um, best ever. Uh, I, if it's if this the one you're thinking of, yeah. I think it probably is. Is my, I'm sitting suntanning in the backyard of my first real girlfriend as a junior in high school, and um, all I wanted to do was kiss her closed eyelids. I just wanted to. I didn't. I didn't. I had. I was a little too insecure at that time, even though I was pretty. Uh, girls like me, let's say. Um, but was, once I felt that thing with this this girl. Uh, I, I didn't have such a strong push for sexuality. All I wanted to do was kiss her eyelids. Mm. So um, the, the, that that was problematic, though, for me because I wouldn't go into sexualized relationships without that, which drew the girl or woman in even further. And then when I realized 
that um, my my heart was a fairly bad gauge of the sobriety of what I felt. It wasn't. It was a, a little drunk uh, because of my issues with my mother, right? Relationships with women. So I, I tended to hurt women even more because I drew them much more closely than the average guy would. They felt like, wow, where did this guy come from? Because most guys just want to, you know, fucking suck and get in and be gone. And mm -hmm. I didn't. Uh, so that drew women closer and made the, the pain, the pain of my having to disengage, which I almost always did. The woman didn't, I did. And that hurt uh, women, uh, especially in my twenties, even more. So um, these kinds of things, there's no way around uh, failing and hurting uh, others who are close to us, especially in sexual int uh, intimacy, be until uh, unless we can't get avoided, unless we preheal before we ever have any bloody relationships, mm. uh, and that's impossible in the human condition as it is now. So, so we can't talk about uh, this realization that your closest relationships don't actually nourish you without talking about codependence, which I'm sure we've talked about before. I know we have. I just don't know when and where. Sure. But what would you say is the difference between the experience of intimate romantic love when there's a significant amount of codependence going on versus when there isn't? When there's a, a significant amount of codependence going on, if we define as identity does codependence as the uh, projection onto adult relationships of unhealed wounds from childhood, which is a very astute uh, definition uh, that would not be disagreed with by some measures of psychology, yeah. but where they wouldn't get the actually depth of what that those words actually represent. Um, so, I got an example there, that, a really yeah. common one on these days. The concept, I think we talked about this somewhere in the last 10 podcasts, but in a different um, context. The idea that someone else is responsible for making you feel safe. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Which is a really common one that something that women want from men, especially. Especially, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or men want just as much from women, but don't live into the consciousness of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So, in that sense, um, to the degree that you would say, um, well, I have to quote uh, a Tom Cruise movie here, much as it pains me to do so. <laughs> Just about uh, to say, that's, un <laughs> that's unlike you, Stace. Um, well, yeah, because uh, Scientology, their god is ego. And so um, <laughs> what else can we say about uh, little Tom? You know, little Tom, I'm, I'm only an inch taller than him, so I yeah, can't he's, Yeah, he's just, yeah. But he's there's a, a big guy. difference between 5'8 and 5'9 or 5, yeah, he's 5'8, right? He's 5'7, five, seven, I'm 5'7, five, five, oh, that's yeah. a big difference. Yeah, that, that inch really There's <laughs> a cliff a there. Yeah. yeah, not like head, not, 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 not like head, uh, Hedwich, Hedwick. Hey, you watched Hedwig and the Angry Inch oh, recently? I know, but I know about it. Oh. I, I see, I've seen pieces of it before. I John Cameron Mitchell. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's pretty uh, short, I think, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he is. At any rate, um, uh, um, well, how did I get on that? What was I saying? Yeah, by the way, just if we should, we could do a whole episode on Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which I recently was telling your wife to, to watch. I don't oh, think yes. she's seen it. She it's one of my all time favorite movies and a lot yeah. of lovely themes there. But what we were talking about, we were talking about uh, codependence. Codependence, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, the, um, the difference in the quality of love. And then I brought, and we, we were talking about the levels, the, the rigorous levels to which identity takes identifying codependence. We should yes. probably talk about that. 
Okay. So um, I love the way you framed the question, the difference between moderate or severe codependence. What would that feel like? Uh, and a big one is one you already mentioned. If I was going to say, if you feel, oh, that's how I was going to quote Tom. Oh, uh, yeah. In, in the movie with Renee Zellweger. Um, uh, Jerry Maguire. Uh, Jerry Maguire. I'll take Tom yeah. Cruise movie for 500. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, where toward the denouement in Act Three of the of the film, uh, 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 he he admits, "You complete me." Mm-hmm. Um, now that sounds so soulful, doesn't it? Uh, I know it did for me at, at first, and then I I only took about six minutes of reflection. I went, Wait a minute. Um, uh, it can mean something. Uh, I could use the same words in a really non-codependent relationship. There's a healthy completion, but until you uh, heal away your experience with your uh, with your first uh, taste of relationality and was so close and binding. Uh, when you say you complete me without healing that, that is you make me feel whole. Parenthetically, you make me feel safe and secure and complete and whole and um, confident, that, empowered, whatever absolutely. comes from that. Yeah. And that is flagrantly codependent because it's mm-hmm. not a partner's job to provide any of that to uh, an adult human being, only to a wounded child who got older. And then we might have a, add in the distinction there, um, needing love with a partner versus needing love from a partner. Yes, exactly. And oh, if there's love, significant yeah. upset about yeah. those needs not being met, then we would always inquire as to what's really going on here. Yeah. Um, especially if the need can't be vulnerably voiced, then it's a wasn't a need, it was a demand. And then exactly. that's the protector trying to feed a subpersona under its watch to try to get mm-hmm. the parent needs met um, surreptitiously, the parenting needs met surreptitiously. Excuse me, audience, for my uh, confusion today. I haven't slept well in about two months for reasons we may or may not get to in this podcast, but bear with me. But but thank you. One of the things I want to add in here, because you brought up Hedvig, which of course, the the, um, and I invite everyone to see that movie. It's one of my all-time favorite films, but one of the themes in Hedvig, uh, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, starring John Cameron Mitchell, who's a genius, and and that guitarist, the um, uh, oh, Travis, yeah, yeah. what's his name? He wrote all yeah. the music for it. He's amazing. Uh, but he's the whole thing is he's looking for his other half. That's that's the, the theme. And there's this whole uh, platonic, as in the philosopher Plato. There's this mythos brought in, like, are we created? Were we originally whole souls and then split into two? Because you know, that's how it feels Yes, because <laughs> it feels like we're, we're incomplete and we so desperately need another aspect or another person to right. complete us. And there's literally in Hedvig a sort of, I, I, I don't know platonic philosophy that well. I studied a bit in college, but I don't think it's an accurate interpretation of Plato. <laughs> I think it's a... Uh, yeah, it's a, a follow a Platonian uh, who skewed uh, the Yeah, because the, the Platonic idea is that there's essence in some far off perfect place and that everything here is a form representation, an imperfect form representation of that pure perfect essence, right? So he, the philosophy mm-hmm. of the film is what if there was a perfect form of people and there were two people in one, and then the gods got mad and cut us into two, and that's why we're forever, because especially for Enneagram Fours, like uh-huh. Hedvig is, yes. forever searching for our other half to be reunited and create that uh, uh, essential form, recreate that essential form. 
Absolutely. Which is yeah. a philosophy firmly grounded in virulent codependence identity. Oh, but beautiful nonetheless. Yes. Well, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, yes. A, a beautiful story, but the I'll, I'll withhold until after I see Hedwig fully. Um, but I always said uh, uh, it is the most demonstrably toxic codependent relationship <laughs> I ever heard in literature or in films. They 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 want to kill each other because they can't live with each other. That is the ultimate codependence for yeah. relative to what we're saying. And your and your language, of course, is exactly what identity offers. Uh, we were malconditioned to, well, I need love. I have love for you and I need love from you. Yes. Um, yes. The four, the two F's for and from, and that's always codependent. I've not seen an exception yet. I guess there could be, but our, our terminology to reflect the reality of non-codependence is you don't have love for, or you need love from your partner, you've gotten whole enough in yourself vertically. Uh, because, because only a child needs love from exactly. that. That's when and where it was true. And if it exactly didn't get right. met to that degree, and that's a crazy assertion right there that psychology would yes. kind of probably go, okay, I get what you're saying, but, and we would say like, no, 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 no. If your frame for intimate relationship is loving for and leave and and receiving love from right that is the degree to which you live in codependent land which is like 99.9 percent .9 of people 99.99 i might add um by <laughs> default, i mean we don't know us, joseph and i inclusive including everyone yeah. ourselves included we can only speak to it because uh, identity found a dharma to uncover uh, how deep we malcondition we are completely unknowingly by our world. So the frame instead with love with another means you're done needing love from and you, you no longer express love for, you express love with. That's a horizontal um, uh, cleanliness that comes from a clean vertical in each of the partners that they've done their own work inside. So, you know, I, and I hadn't made this connection before, but I'm thinking about uh, two or three podcasts ago when we talked about the yin and yang dynamics with the diagrams that we put up on YouTube. Um, what occurs to me is that the, as adults anyway, the love from and love for it's willful. It's, yes, it's, it's pulling lovely. love willfully from and pushing love at, yeah. as opposed to love with. There's a feeling, and 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 you can have the experience of it. Is the, the love moves itself? All you got to do is just be there. Yeah, you don't have to grab it or push mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it has its own life that in in induces reactions out of the two partners um it, you, you don't you don't willfully cross a space with the love it it it, it draws you the, the the one plus one equals three we would say is the best mm -hmm. um uh example of a non-codependent relationship the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts because it draws our souls into the connective space after we clean up our mommy and daddy projections for or against closeness right um so, so in that sense, um, by default, we're all codependent. And so those are some really strongly edged clarities of how to distinguish the degree of codependence, which is just horrendously deep in our, and especially in the West where you actually have support for um, self-actualized versions of love or self-actualized yeah. basis 
for love, right? And when we make assertions like 99.99% of people, obviously we haven't met them all, but, um, and so it's, it's a wild assertion and, you know, not uh, certainly necessarily fact, but if you look at fiction and philosophy and spirituality and religion, you can see the clues, uh, music. I always think of, um, the police's, uh, hit every breath you take, which is a very beautiful and brilliant (sighs) and virulently codependent. Or yeah. Moulin Rouge. Yes. Talk oh, about the willingness oh. to die also of an Enneagram 4 film. Oh, <laughs> like, God. Uh, what's that line in uh, um, uh, Come What May? Uh, um, never something, never thought I could feel like this, like I've never felt, not like I've never seen the sky before. It's like that, that, that feeling that everything changes and suddenly life is worth living, we yes. would say is, what's you say what's what's going on there what's the metaphysics the psychological metaphysics for why when someone falls in love they fall yes not rise but our language right away signals the um the metaphysical uh, damage that's already reflected or represented by our language Mm -hmm. you fall out of yourself and too far into the way the other person makes you feel ah well said as opposed to how that other person actually shares the same kind of uh, or very resonant value systems transaction. Uh, that's the other thing that non-codependent relationship, you, when you're done, when you're done healing this way to some minimum degree, you start drawing uh, a partner's who process reality more resonantly with you. Not the same. You don't want, I didn't, I didn't want another Stace, although my green did, you know, um, <laughs> I, I wanted Guilty. a woman who gave me contrast, but who processes reality along certain assumptions and, and ways of being that are as resonant. It can be opposite, but even opposites can be resonant. For example, what I tend to express outwardly as uh, yangic forms of um, health and unhealth, Brie uh, uh, has exactly the same uh, degree uh, of it, but is inwardly in a yin way. Uh, what I express outwardly, she holds inwardly. What I hold, what she expresses outwardly, I hold inwardly. So there's opposite mm-hmm. ways of of relating to the way we process to reality, but Mm -hmm. they're resonant because they're, that's a hotbed then of being able to, um, uh, uh, co kind of, um, illuminate in each other. Well, if this is what I do on the outside, Brie would always mostly say over the years, well, what am I doing on the inside? That's like that. Mm -hmm. And that's really helpful. So in that sense, we rise to love, uh, uh, to create one plus one equals three, as opposed to codependent ways of the equations are either one plus one equals one, one plus one equals zero, um, Q 50 year codependent, uh, relationships, mm-hmm. marriages, right. Or one plus one equals minus one, which is when they're constantly fighting. Um, and, uh, uh, there's no solution because they, they've, you've attracted someone who doesn't process reality like you whatsoever. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which we hold as being, it's the, the, those resonant values become a kind of framework for the love to move. Exactly. And that's what, that's what's always discouraged me when I was younger, I looked philosophically and in the philosophy of psychology, actually in my forties for somewhere that said that values resonation was a key part of 
uh, or harbinger or imprimatur of healthy relationship. I never mm -hmm. found that anywhere. Uh, they, psychology tends not to go anywhere near value systems because if you if you if you try to change a client's value system, you're called a cult, a cultist. Yes, um, right. You can't do that. Um, can't you have to touch, you have touch. to heal. Oh wait, no, they don't try to do yeah. that anyway. You no. have to treat <laughs> someone's symptoms yes. by not addressing their values. That well, that makes sense because you can only treat their symptoms if you don't address their values. So but where do you that think makes the sense. symptoms come from? Yeah. Our, our value system is wounded by our in insufficiency of getting bandwidth of love we needed as kids it's templated it's in there for yeah. all of us and then holds it in. and yeah. that holds it in completely mm -hmm. so they can only treat symptoms and then they think that that's healing so many they can't distinguish between symptom treatment and healing because they don't they can't get past the value system issue right yeah i was i was talking to a client recently who um just did, did some um uh had, had a friend who's a gifted somatic somatic psychology practitioner and uh called upon him for some help and uh and he i said so so how was it kind of biting my tongue a little bit like, all right let <laughs> I, him talk you know <laughs> as you can imagine like oh how was it i'm gonna be an open-minded guy here and let's just hear hear him out mm -hmm. and um he said something like um i got some really good releases and um that was one other thing. My mind is so weak right now. Sorry. It's that it got some really good releases and something else that will come to me in a minute. And um, and I got some practices, and I'll probably be working with this anger issue my entire life. And I went, what makes you, what gives you the idea you're going to have to work with the anger issue your entire life? Where'd you get that idea? Uh -huh. And then we deconstructed that to, oh, that's the premise of the paradigm because if releases, which is moving yes. energy, not working with the core emotion, if yes. the release of energy doesn't actually get to the root, right? So, so it doesn't actually work all the way. I'm sure when that first created and the person had the release, they're like, wow, I bet you it'll never come back. And then when a month later, <laughs> three months later, it came back. They're like, oh, well, now we got to make a practice out of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's right. like a spiritual practice then. You just keep doing yeah. it. And it's right. like, you know, taking a shower. It's not like once and you're done. Yeah, and so then the paradigm then, there's the value system. Yes. The right. very paradigm, they don't tell you this. Mm -hmm. It's implicit. But if it's an energetic release, you will need more and you have to make a practice out of it. Then they've already pre-decided what it is and what can and can't be done about it. Yes. But yes. they don't tell you that. <laughs> no, because a lot of uh, uh, psychological teachers and, and therapists, that is, they're not cognizant of that. They've, they, yeah. they've learned it from theirs and from their culture or their family or their education or whatever. So you're, this is such a tragedy um, that, that emo uh, energetic releases are like drugs. You have to keep doing them to keep yep. the effect going. And at yep. some point... We, will, we use this metaphor quite a bit. You're traveling in a circle around the mountain halfway up toward the peak, and, you're, mm -hmm. and you can circle that mountain over and over, and as the seasons change, you can see different things in the forest around. Yeah, nice. But, but you're, 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 you're stuck at the same altitude. You're not going to get to the peak or the, and the acme of it, of what is possible to learn uh, by moving away from a, a energetic symptomological treatment to core emotional. Uh, but, it, but if your paradigmatic value yeah, is right. that uh, childhood yeah. wounds 
these are energies stuck in our body that require regular releases, yes, <laughs> then it leads to the day-to-day -day, um, way of relating to reality of I'll be working on this for the rest of my life. And yes. so in that moment, I did what a therapist is not supposed to do and said, what makes you think you're going to have to work, deal with it the rest of your life? Yeah. I guess that means you're not really dealing with the core issue. Right. I didn't say it like that. But, but but I get what you might have intimated there. Yeah, yeah, that's what we got to. And he loved the reframe. It was like, oh, and like, and sure, sure you can do that. But, mm -hmm. you know, it only took a couple of minutes for him to be like, yeah, I've been dealing with this. My, well, one of the answers to the question, why do you think it's going to, why do you think you're going to have to deal with the rest of your life? He said, because I've been dealing with it for 60 years. Yeah. And that, and that's why, like, it's a reasonable assumption and be, and because most paradigms will validate it and say, yeah, like AA one day at a time, got to be totally <laughs> vigilant every day. And it's yeah. like, that's fine. But can you have some meta and maybe be like, well, this is functioning to treat the thing, but what if there were a way to actually deal with it all the way that didn't yeah. require that vigilance? Shouldn't we be working on that as well? <laughs> I love that there are the pills. Yes, sure. Shall we work on the final solution as well? Well, and I, I love how you say that because um, here's a good moment to really um, humbly assert that identity has reinvented psychology. Yeah. In the same way it's reinvented philosophy, in the same way it's yeah. reinvented spirituality, it's reinvented everything. And relaunched metaphysics. And which, which has been dead for like 600 years. <laughs> yeah, it used to be. They used to be out there. And some yep. of the early philosophers, what are the governing dynamics mm -hmm. of why we do what we do, feel what we feel, or think what we think? Mm -hmm. uh, those were more in the forefront in the great um, Socrates, uh, all of his questions. Aristotle, about, Plato, Renaissance all philosophers. To, to, to governing dynamics. We say our word for governing dynamics are... Um, uh, what did I just say? Paradigms? <laughs> uh, paradigms. Yeah. Uh, the value systems, the governing dynamics are the, the assumptions, the uh, metaphysics. The metaphysics are the yeah. governing dynamics for everything that's down line. If the metaphysics are off, if the foundation of a house is not level, um, the walls and the roof and the windows won't ever fit of the being, you see? Yeah. So you got to have a, a metaphysical foundation to make straight walls. Uh, but everyone operates at the level of the walls or the ceiling or the windows. Well, why doesn't this door fit to relationality, you know? Yeah. As a, uh, uh, hinges. I love, I've been really fascinated with paradigms recently as my new, new brain cells seem to be waking up to it or more accurately aspects of my soul, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, I came across uh, a Christopher Hitchens video today. You must know him, yeah. I know the name, but I, I'm not. He was that a he. He was like a, a putting atheism on the map and uh, had some excoriating oh. rants yeah. against uh, Christianity and especially Catholicism. Uh, and I saw this video where he just goes oh, I through. I would like. I would like him. Yeah, I was going to send it to you, but I thought for sure you would know this guy well. Um, yeah, he, you would love it. You know, he just um, and he's uh, he was born in the States, but I think raised in Britain. So he's got this very wry wit and he just tears apart Catholicism for here are the all the really bad apologies they've made for things. And here are the things they've not apologized for. For example, as I know, you know, they yeah. didn't apologize for Galileo until 1992. Right. Um, the Crusades, I think, was like 95 or something yeah. like that. Uh -huh. And um, the one of the quotes from uh, a pope or not, the, I don't know if it was the pope or some other bishop or something. It was like, because there's so many things to apologize through, for through the ages, this is basically paraphrasing, the apologies will have to be summary. 
<laughs> and then so he starts his talk he's like so my deconstruction of all this will have to be summary as well and yeah. he just tears it apart and but what, what i found fascinating was because he's an atheist yeah he has to throw the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater. yes so he's super hugely anti-religion but can't see any of the redeeming qualities which of course makes would make any christian not be able to hear any of it yeah, that's because right. he's not trying to clean up the religion; he's trying to destroy oh. it. Yeah, it's a and I, the the way that I always um, framed it because it felt framed this way for me is that uh, um, the, you know how seriously you have to take religion as some authority for talking for divinity before you have to reject it altogether. Mm. You have to really yeah. take it seriously. Mm-hmm. How anyone can take religious seriously enough to throw the divine fa- um, uh, um, baby out with the religious bathwater is astounding to me. Mm-hmm. It's so ludicrous what religions teach. Well, so and they also, you also you have to make you have to not realize that atheism is as much a belief system as the yes. religion is, which he yes. doesn't get. No, th- th- their God is no God, um, yeah. uh, and so atheism isn't the answer, even though they have a clear view of the shortcomings of religion. But here's the most, uh, since we're just talking in this little uh, short um, um, uh, rabbit hole, rabbit hole uh, uh, the most disingenuous and nauseating response I ever heard to um, the uh, uh, accusations of someone like him in an atheistic uh, way uh, was by a Catholic bishop. I forget who he was and uh, what his name was, but... I'll have to summarize it because I had to hold my lunch down. He, he got this very concerned and very fatherly kind of compassionate look on his face. And he said, well, you know, we're all imperfect. And the church, <laughs> even though its truths are absolute and God ordained, we human beings are forever flawed. And so there were we're going to make mistakes as human beings inside the otherwise perfect um, a picture we hold that God gave us through Jesus. Yeah. So there this, it is. This, there, there was the uh, apologia that appeared to apologize, but was so disingenuous. It never addressed the content of why they burned witches who happened to have third eye more than the men in black who burned them. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, anyone, any woman that had more consciousness than the men in black had to be killed because they threatened mm-hmm. the patriarchal insecurity. Well, yeah. And, and even more um, to the paradigmatic point, this is what I wanted to assert how Many people like uh, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and Christopher Hitchens, 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 yeah, uh, who's passed now. But uh, these these kind of um, uh, non-religious, non-spiritual, scholarly people, mm-hmm. they're great critical thinkers, but not paradigmatic thinkers, oh, and that's yeah. what really pains me because they're they're cl- they're neighbors. Yes, they're neighbors, right? And you can be a right. great critical thinker and not think paradigmatically. Because if Chris, exactly. Chris, Christopher Hitchens had been thinking paradigmatically, then in this talk he would say exactly where you just brought it to, which right. is 
you had to treat women this way. You had to treat Jews this way. You had to. um, It's not that you're hiring a queer priest. It's that your your paradigm (laughs) produces sexual deviance by repressing something natural. All of what you've done is the natural, logical conclusion of your paradigmatic assumptions. And it makes me crazy that this way of thinking is not understood in the world. They... It's just what happens. And and it's all data that they could use to go, I think some of our assumptions are wrong. <laughs> and this and scientists do this every day. But no, you can't apply that to value systems. You can't apply the scientific method to value systems because we can't talk about those. Those are taboo. They're none of your business. That is the beautiful way you say that um, a, a paradigmatic thinker always has critical thinking, yeah. but a critical thinker doesn't necessarily is a paradigmatic thinker. Um, and that's exactly right. Um, uh, identity has a benchmark to measure the sobriety of moral systems, for example, mm-hmm. morality itself, which is upstream. Well, you can't oh, challenge people's morals and values, though. Oh, that's baby. like a cult would do that. Well, yeah, well, we must be an anti-cult then because um, we challenge unsober moral systems that have come out of religion. Um, Allah will will um, reward me if I kill the infidel. Yes, by the way, ch- wait, challenging existing moral systems? You mean like Muhammad did, like Jesus did, like Moses did, like uh, uh, the, the Hindu guy, uh, uh, Lao Tzu did, the Buddha did. All of these great leaders challenge existing moral systems. But if you do it and it's not really popular, then it's a cult. Yes, <laughs> nicely put. So identity is proud to stand on the same stage uh, to challenge moral the value systems of our morality, uh, co- our moral codes. And so, in that sense, if you think paradigmatically instead of just critically thinking, an atheist would go, "Well, um, I can't say there isn't a god, but it certainly isn't the god that the religions represent." That would be thinking paradigmatically. There would mm-hmm. be a curiosity, not an absolutism. Yeah. If, but look, an atheist is just as absolutist as the Catholic, uh, right. who has no negotiability about the fact that God said this and Jesus yeah. had his firmest birth. Because without absolutism, there's no holy wars, there's no inquisition, there's no witch burning. You have to have absolutism to, to do any of that. It's paradigmatically no- driven. There would be no patriarchy without absolutism. Mm. So uh, all the problems of religions are, uh, all the problems of paradigms are not caused by the content of the paradigm downline. It's the absolutism that makes their their paradigm sacrosanct and that mm. cannot be challenged. That is the problem. Not that um, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, um, uh Jesus, the host and the wine you have during mass at a Catholic uh, service changes directly into uh, blood yes. and body of Jesus, which you have to believe. Yes, you have way. to believe that. Remember that article about the gluten-free hosts? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my so God. Funny. As if Jesus' flesh was gluten-free. You know? Yeah, because, because they so there was some company run by nuns this was back in the 90s and there was some news article uh, and it was just one of these great examples of like 
the where the paradigm almost completely fell apart and could have and should have but didn't because it was a company because the uh, what do they call that the d- disease uh, celiac disease was becoming uh, was becoming yeah. more uh, awared I'll use mm-hmm. that word in society, uh, mm-hmm. made aware in society. And so uh, some nuns started this company creating uh, uh, gluten-free uh, hosts, not realizing that mm-hmm. by doing that, they were admitting that they were actually not transmuting the <laughs> cookie into something other than a wheat wafer. And the whole paradigm could have fallen apart on that one little wafer thing. Wait a minute. Because they, they didn't get that that's what they were doing. Yes. They would, uh, What difference would the chemical makeup of the cookie is if it's going to turn into the body of Jesus anyway? <laughs> I mean, it's... I mean, we laugh, but you, you could cry tears of blood over yeah. how juvenile are we are as a species in not thinking paradigmatically and metaphysically. Um, mm-hmm. uh, once we got divorced from metaphysics, it was off to the races of whose content feels better to you, not what's most real. Mm-hmm. So look how look how the rabbit hole from parenting and yeah, relationships yeah. Uh, goes so to... Yeah, yeah, in order to, to keep us on focus here, that's my job, to go back to how we got off on this was the, the paradigmatic assumption that 99.9% of people seem to be in, as far as we can tell, and based right. on pop culture and media and all that, is the flawed paradigmatic assumption that is more widespread than any religion because it covers all of them, that yes. intimate partnership love is about love from and yes. love for And what if that's entirely not wrong, um, but a necessary phase of development that's also necessary to grow out of? Oh, lovely. Great. Wonderfully said. Yeah, it's uh, when when they make it the end all be all instead of a developmental phase, uh, then it closes down further inquiry uh, about the metaphysics of the of what's the metric that measures the sobriety of their metaphysics. You got to go deeper in to get to that, and they don't. When they close it down with that, when they think that's the end game instead of a phasic um, uh, developmental stage. Mm-hmm. So in this way. Um, uh, intimate relationships are where it's a good example of, um, I always forget who uh, first coined this. It came out in uh, computer programming, of course, is rubbish in, rubbish out. Mm-hmm. If your metaphysics are rubbish, all the downline expressions of the truths of your paradigm are going to be rubbished. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not about being 100% wrong. It's about being a virtually always incomplete and so it's the, the one thing that I can agree with Catholics are is that there is a God, but not the God that the Pope talks about or your religion talks about. So it's incomplete. And as you said so beautifully, um, religion in its best possible light is an honoring of people's sense somewhere of the sacredness of something greater than ourselves. Uh, I love that religion pioneered and baked and incubated that sacred that sacred kind of feeling, but when they did from wrong uh, assumptions based in tribal metaphysics, uh, the sins of the father, uh, the parents uh, are, are inherited by the children. That's a tribal pre-psychological uh, assumption of a, meta, of a tribal paradigm that is its source for the Adam and Eve original sin thing. All of, all of humanity inherited their sin. That's tribal. That just before they even 
committed the sins. I'm really curious how that works. Yeah, that's well, amazing. That, that's another whole wonderful topic. That's like uh, a prepaid phone card. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever call you make, it's already paid for. It's already, <laughs> uh, well, in this case, unpaid for. Until they you still open, have such a thing? Prepaid uh, phone cards? Yeah, unpaid do. for. Unpaid for. Uh, and the only solution is to altruize your way to redemption, right? Yes, uh, and then you get the card, right? <laughs> but not until you die, actually. All right. you know, yeah. But there's one other rabbit hole that I think we have to cover for this second um, realization that you happen, that you get an identity about, uh, that your relationships don't really nourish you. Uh, there's a side side rabbit, rabbit, rabbit hole here that I think will go right into the third one if we get to it today, but probably won't till next time. And mm -hmm. that is that the orientation which we all know well in all of our lives the phrase you made me feel blank mm -hmm. is somehow an accurate representation of how human consciousness works mm -hmm. identity steps in here especially in intimate relationships well you made me feel devalued because you were unfaithful in our exclusive relationship and slept with someone else you made me feel invalidated, un, unworth in myself. You made me feel that. And of course, identity's uh, sobriety, which is extreme in mm -hmm. this domain, would say nobody makes you feel anything that you don't already unconsciously feel. Mm -hmm. if, uh, if my wife um, uh, uh, was unfaithful, uh, I would never say, you make me feel this, 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 and this. I would say, well, wow, was your capacity to be unfaithful was off my radar screen. Mm -hmm. I would take it back to myself. What did I miss? It's like someone saying, if someone punches you in the mouth and you go, oh, you hurt me, you hurt my jaw, instead of, why didn't I see that punch coming? Uh, you made me feel, if someone called me uh, uh, online or elsewhere, um, a, a, a patriarchal uh, child molester, for example, mm -hmm. the shoe wouldn't fit, so, so I wouldn't be insulted by that. I'm a moderator on the next door uh, here. I'm actually, part, I created the, uh, the, founder, the founding guy and the moderator of it. And, and uh, yeah, it's like herding cats. And recently I had to text someone about being inappropriate. And they texted, I said, you know, please be respectful. That's one of the rules yeah. here. And here's mm -hmm. this comment you made. His response was, you are a communist pussy. That's <laughs> <laughs> what he wrote. <laughs> and I said, thanks for confirming your issue. I'll be forwarding this to next door corporate. Yes. <laughs> and he probably was suspended. But like, yeah, I was like, yeah. well, I'm not communist. And I really yeah. think I'm above average and courageous. So it, it didn't hurt. I, yes. found it kind of, I mean, it pinched a little bit, well, but not very much. And when you, when you get to, I'm just getting there myself after, a, you know, for 35, 40 years of trying to work on my bloody self. Um, I should get to some conclusions, the other shore, uh, at least get my feet <laughs> wet on the sand of the other shore is that when you get to a certain point, all you feel is sorrow for the projector there. Mm. So if someone called me a, a patriarch uh, or a, a child molester, um, I go, wow, you must really have unhealed authority issues. I wouldn't say that to them, um, but mm -hmm. I, would, I would feel that they would project that on me, that I triggered something in them that brought out they already 
uh, felt like uh, their parents were, were a child molester or some authority was a child molester. So identity would say, especially in intimate relationship, that anytime you say, you make me feel negative emotion um, uh, parenthetically, um, you already feel that in unconscious, or you wouldn't be hurt by it, or judgmentally outraged or resentful about it. You just go, wow, the, the shoe doesn't fit. I'm not wearing that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if someone called me, um, you know, you've had a really hard time learning how to be with people your whole life. Uh, uh, maybe there's a piece of it's happening right this moment with me. I would go, that's certainly possible. Uh, um, I, I can't abide, as you said, uh, we got to work on it uh, for the rest of our life, but yeah. I will work on that until it's healed. Uh, and I expect it to be healed in this lifetime. So I wouldn't say I have to always, you know, find my releases about it. But so on, on one end, there's the, nobody can make you feel anything. Um, and, uh, on the other end, well, how do I say this? Let me go back. Uh, in NLP, neuro linguistic programming, they would agree. Yes. Nobody can make you feel anything. You can create your own reality with your wait for it mind, and yes. so you can use your conscious <laughs> mind to create your experience however you want. And you have no responsibility for how you quote make other people feel because you don't make anyone feel that way. But right. from what I've experienced with NLP people, NLP people directly is they don't take any responsibility for it and they also don't care yes and that's where identity differs so we say no you're not responsible for how you make someone feel but it's important to add here that you ought to be responsive it should matter to you yes. that the that you had that impact or that 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 impact had happened and that's the passive distinction voice. i was so glad you brought that joseph that distinction is big enough to drive a paradigm through yeah it's really uh, different it sounds like a minor adjustment but it's a whole other worldview uh, because what's behind that that uh yeah i'm not responsible uh for how you hear what i just said um, but i am responsive for my impact on you how did you hear what i said how did it how did it make you feel and how what you heard let me see if i can help clear this up i yeah. i can maybe see how you heard da, da 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 is that what you heard see there i'm caring about my impact i'm responsive just not responsible and that's where one of my favorite identity definitions for relationality shows up it's two or more people negotiating reality and yes. then the, the conversation can be like oh how did that land for you I didn't mean it that way, or I didn't realize it had that edge on it. You can tell me the impact that it had, and we can talk about it, and maybe it brought up some childhood stuff, et cetera. And these days, on a unfortunately daily basis, I'm feeling some uh, hurt experiences with um, uh, my lady, and um, I will sometimes just say, ouch. And on, at the moment right now, most of the time, she keeps at it. So I'm left with uh, having, I can't get any uh, justice and it, it doesn't relent. So I can't get any justice right now um, because she's not that curious about her impact on me. So all I'm left with is looking at why it hurts me so much, my side mm -hmm. of it, what I can learn from. Yeah. Um, because it does, as we talked about all the way back in the beginning of this conversation, there yeah. is a frequency of love that is a lot like how my mother loved me. Yes. Where this, it's really good and then suddenly bad. It's really good and then suddenly bad. And um, it feels, um, I could say, 
it feels manipulative. That's not really a feeling. I feel manipulated. That's not really a feeling either. I feel trapped. That's on the way. There you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt as a kid. And then that's between me and me. And then hopefully that matters to my, my beloved enough that at some point she's just curious to look at her contribution to that. Sure. But I don't, uh, I can almost, can't, almost can't even get the words out of my mouth. But I what? I don't need her to. Uh, about 55% of me, 60, 60% of me can, can say that. I sure. certainly won't demand, uh, yeah. but sometimes uh, part of me does. It's 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 really difficult to embody this. It's way yes. easier, as right. in contrast, right. way easier to embody. I have no responsibility whatsoever or responsivity for how you feel. That is all you. We are yeah. all in bubbles. And what's that? All oh, the four agreements guy. You know oh, that guy? God. Yes. Oh, oh. God. Oh. The four, <laughs> I, let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. everybody's the, the, in their own dream those days you can't make anyone feel anything because we're all in our own dream we're all in our own movie man and man. everybody's just having their own experience you know and there's no real relating happening it's all like your own movie that's oh, that paradigm. Oh, wow, man. <laughs> like, I just, that's just so in the groove of truth dude or the modern version simulation Right. Yes. Okay. Sorry, but, I'll shut up and let you talk. No, no. I, I, all, everything you just said fits what I wanted to say next anyway. And okay. The, the most disingenuous and nauseatingly sickening response that some people think represents, I'm, I, I care about your impact, uh, my impact on you, is when people, and I'll, I'll have to energize Oh, no. This. I know what you're going to say. This is, um, well... I'm sorry you feel that way. I knew it. Oh, God, I hate that phrase. Uh, I'm sorry that um, I made you feel that way. No, no, no. I'm sorry if I made you feel that way. That's the the conditional if. I'm sorry (laughs) if I made you feel that. That's translated. You warped everything. You're 100% wrong, and you're projecting on me 100%. And yet they th- they think they get away with, I'm yeah. sensitive to the impact I have on this person. And, and this is as widespread um, as like uh, in a customer service script. I'm sorry if there was any inconvenience. I just spent two minutes telling you what the inconvenience was. Why are you using the word if? There's no if. There's evidence. There's data. There's action. It happened. Don't if me. Yeah. Oh, I want to, you know, I've never, I've never worn a t-shirt that had a message on it my whole life, even as a teenager, but don't if me that, that's, I just made that up. Oh God, Joseph, don't if me, uh, that is, I've literally said that I, you know, it, it's, it comes too much from my own judgment. So it's never really landed. I mean, a couple of times I was like, you know what? When you use the word if like that, it kind of gives me the feeling that that I'm not listened to and that all the pain I just expressed didn't really land. They, they, they don't know what to do with that usually, but uh, yeah, I try. Wow. A lot of, a lot of uh, domain real estate we covered today. Yeah, customer service. emanating out of how closest, rela- closest relationships don't really nourish us vis-a-vis the fact that our first close relationship didn't nourish us and we're doomed to that cycle till we vertically heal which identity with its premise of we feel therefore we are changes the playing field for every domain of human activity every domain it has some seminal 
uh, shift. Uh, it's seismic. Uh, identity is seismic in challenging the paradigmatic worldviews that are out there. There's half a dozen or so we could name sometime soon, uh, the five or six main worldviews out there and how identity really uh, 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 seismically um, splur, uh, um, cleaves off uh, away mm -hmm. from anything like that. Mm -hmm. But in, the, in that sense, it leads directly to number three, which we can only headline a bit today here, mm -hmm. that your parents did a far worse job than you thought, which mm -hmm. is exactly what we've been saying so far. But what's important here. The first thing that triggers people with this this one, which I love that you brought that in those words, is that we're blaming parents, mm -hmm. and we're not. And this is a very specific thing that's so important. We're blaming parenting paradigms. Well, and you know, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm changing the wording right now. I'm changing the wording right now to that your parenting was far worse than you thought. Yes. So it's a little less blamey. Then, then, then people, we don't have to make this initial distinction yeah. because parents did the best they could. Um, they got conditioned by their parents who never met their emotional, emotosoulful needs and their parents and their parents. There's no blame of parents. They love us in spite of all of their flaws. We're not blaming the parents, but we are holding them responsible or we say they should hold themselves responsible for what they for the mistakes they did do not to excoriate and beat themselves but to say to acknowledge how think of it Joseph how many grown adult children all they would need to to heal up ruptures with parents as adults is to hear a parent from their heart say man i messed up in that way yeah yeah well as a yeah, as a downstream um, expression of this, a few different times I've said directly to my parents, I don't need you to have done anything different. Right. I just want to be able to, as an adult, talk about occasionally what was missing. Yes. Exactly. They can't do it. No. I, I have met what? Out of the, I would say, I sometimes I'll think about it, and I, I've literally affected one way or the other about 1,000 to 1,500 people in my long mm -hmm. life. It's about right. And I've only met one or two examples of adult parents who have ever could do that. Yeah, it happens. It's not, it, it's probably one to 5%. One to 5%. It's a, it's not rocket science. If you frame it that way, that I, I don't need anything to have been um, different, just the impact of what was missing mm. on me. Can you at least see that? I'm not blaming you. Yeah. When I told my, when I had my, my conversation with my parents where I confronted them about uh, lying to me about um, being sperm donor conceived, right. uh, and I told them about, I started to tell them some of the impact it had on me, and they started to get defensive and argumentative, and I said, no, no stop, 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 that you did it is okay. That yeah. you decided not to tell me, that was the psychological teaching at the time, that was okay. Invalidating what I tell you my experience was of it now, you can't do that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And they still couldn't get that. No. They couldn't no, do it. They're so invested um, and always when you scratch it a little, defend and explain is the yeah. standard response. Instead of, wait, feel for a moment the impact on your child. That's all. And if they could just say, wow, that must have really fucking hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an instant, it would cut through all the complex layers of resentments adult children have for their their, their parents. Yeah. Uh, if parents could just have that one 
lack of a character flaw. Just one. We did the best and obviously it wasn't a much, it wasn't enough and it hurt you in that way. And I could get it. I get what you're saying. Yeah. I can't disagree. But um, what's so fascinating about the inability, cause it seems relatively simple, yeah. but their inability to do that on the inverted, if they could have done that, right. then they would have been way better parents to start because they would have been actually porous to the child's experience and yes. not holding too steep an authority gradient where their reality is the reality. Exactly. And instead they would be supporting the reality of the emerging child, not yes. trying to mold them into their own image, you know, yes. like a old Testament God. <laughs> exactly right. And that, and that shows that they didn't have that porosity it means they didn't get that kind of parental yeah. porosity either. So there's no one to blame in terms of individual parent. What we're confronting is the, the worldwide cult of family values that is based in parenting techniques and parenting guidance that has nothing to do with what children actually need. And the, and the, and this thing that you're parenting, the parenting you experienced did a far, was a far worse version of it than you can imagine is all because parents process reality um, uh, energetically, mentally, willfully, um, or, um, mindfully, not emotively. You can't blame them for that. There's never been a parenting paradigm that said it has all based on emotivity. You can't blame them. And oh, you said, get the impact on us, uh, mom and dad, get the impact. Uh, I, 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 the only time I got close with my mother before she passed in confronting her in this way of what the impact of her on me, she went right to core on worth. For 14 or 15 minutes, the first experience of my life, I am shit. I am no good. Oh, wow. It, it, that, yeah. that showed, and I was, it was I heart-opening for me. I didn't caretaker in that moment. My realization was that's how close to the surface yeah. she was to have core on worth driving all of the compensations of brutality and cruelty yeah. that I as oldest got. You know, we, you often hear in psychology, we'll even admit that uh, we had four kids in our family. All four kids got different childhoods. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, we never ha- I don't have the same uh, parenting experience as my three younger siblings. I was the oldest. I got the best and the worst mm-hmm. uh, of it. The oldest almost always does. They got, they learned a little bit along the way. Um, so I'm not criticized. I don't criticize my other siblings uh, view of my parents, uh, but they often criticize mine, uh, which is limits my values resonation with my siblings, you know, mm-hmm. or has in the past anyway. So mm-hmm. in this way, when we say your parent, the parenting you experienced was far worse than you can imagine. It meant it, it we mean, it left you starving because an apparent would have to have already become emotively self-authenticated, not self-realized, not mm-hmm. self, um, uh, what is it? Actualized, mm-hmm. emotively self-authenticated to have given you emotive, the moto soulful food you needed as a child. So we're not blaming any parents. And that's why, that's why generation after generation after generation, uh, we keep producing uh, insecure uh, um, uh, uh, people who grow up to be parents to continue uh, providing the um, the non-emotional virus 
of insufficiency and inadequacy to their children. And here's an example where we challenge value systems again, because yeah. um, w most of the time, uh, especially when children have normal looking or above average normal looking uh, mm -hmm. childhoods, you mm -hmm. run into people defending their parents quite a bit. Yes. Their protectors defend their parents. Yes, right. And you were trying to get to what was lacking, not yeah. that there wasn't anything good about it, no, but the right. protectors no. and people will often keep, you try to get to what was lacking and they keep wanting to focus on what was good about it, yeah. which is proof that they can't look at all of it. Yes. Um, and I, there, there's a codependent relationship there often with the parents where the child and the parent have this agreement of like, yeah, sure, everything went pretty well. When actually at the level of the unconscious emotion, it, it didn't at all. And nobody wants to look at that. And this is really important to say, and to hook onto that was beautifully said, Joseph, um, is that, that um, if an adult child is constantly in conflict with, with their parents, if they're still in their lives, mm -hmm. that's just as codependent mm -hmm. as, as, as uh, um, folding under what mommy and daddy still want uh, of the child. Because fighting something means you're already a victim and you're tied to them by fighting them just as much as you are by obeying them or, or giving into them. It's always a question for me. Um, uh, I used to say in the old, earlier times, I think even before I met you, that, that um, uh, any adult past the age of 27, I would say 30 now because we've infantilized a generation after generation in the West yeah. anyway, um, uh, by the time of 30, if you still need mommy and daddy in your life, which you do, even if you don't realize you do, if you have daily or weekly conversations with them, you're hooked still. You, you haven't self, even self-actualized, much yeah. less <clears throat> self-authenticated. So why, why would anyone have their parents in their life in any important way after the age of 30? Let's, Unless let's you have parents. resonant values. Uh, oh, you, for sure. Which is usually not the case, usually and we would say, and have been able to talk about what was lacking in yes. at least a mental and energetic way. Yes, and, and and that there was a communicational possibility that they could say get their impact on that. Mm -hmm. that, that then then you have a, a even if there's conflict, you have a relationship in progress of being cleaned up. Mm -hmm. But um, I, so often people would say, "Well, I'm not, I I don't need my parents, and I fight with them all the time." <laughs> Oh, and, so get, and around the holidays, every year around uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter too, somewhat, you start seeing all the communication on the airwaves and social media about like, and jokes and commercials about like, oh yeah, you know, time to spend another uh, time around the Thanksgiving table and try to avoid the fights. It's like, well, then if that's the case, why are you going? Yes. Right. Why are you going? Well, we have to make sure we don't talk about Trump because of uncle so-and-so. And it's like, yeah, you right. guys don't have resonant value systems. So right. all you can do is talk about cats, dogs, and the weather, because yes. otherwise you'll get into a big fight. Like, exactly. How nourishing is that actually for you? Exactly right. Oh, I, I, did I talk about this before? I think I talked about this before, but this is a good place to add in again, the, this idea of, well, you know, my parents, I know they love me. When people say, I know they love me. Uh-huh. Right. Um, we talked about this before, but it's relevant to this. It's, sure. You only would say that you know if you're not actually feeling it. Yes, right. And that's the degree to which you didn't get the love that you needed. It's supposed to be as unmistakable as the noonday sun in the Saharan desert. You don't have to know that. 
No, no, that's a head thing. Knowing is a head thing. Oh, what I meant, I feel it. Yeah. Uh, then you wouldn't have said, I know. Oh, yeah. now you're being semantic. Right. No, no, we're being resonant from inside to outside here. Yeah, it's almost never semantics. No, but that's the easy place to go, especially for NLPers, right? Yeah, right. But what's important here, I'd like to kind of move to close here uh, for today. And that is that even though, and this is really important point, um, with a couple of different uh, dimensions to it, that even though we would say the only real cult uh, in the world is the family cult, because it's the one children can't get away from it. If you're an adult and you're what they call a cult and you are free to leave, they don't bomb. They don't have you under lock and key or lock you in an apartment uh, like the Nexum uh, uh, and in uh, Scientology. But even Scientology. in those cases, you chose the paradigm to begin with as an adult right. and found yourself locked up. You still had choices that got you there. Exactly. So in that sense, um, what, what we call the only real family is a cult. Uh, the only f- real cult is a family is because can't kids can't ch- choose out of it. They can't. Oh, but the adults can't because they got brainwashed. Um, substitute emotionally um, undernourished for brainwashed. And we, that's identity's picture of why they don't recognize up front. And the then codependently hooked. Emotively undernourished as children and then codependently hooked as adults. That's what brainwashing actually is. Exactly right. Um, which culty programmers just don't get. Um, mm-hmm. At any rate, the point here is, is that even though identity excoriates the family cult of values, worldwide family cult of family values, um, because of its the parenting paradigms that govern it, our motive, and I want to expand this just in a few different ways, is we we respect the importance of the family so much. Hmm. We want to change what makes it so insufficient for children. We believe in the family so much. We're, we're not anarchists. We're not that, uh, that way. We believe in the family so much. We gently and passionately both want to change the premises of parenting paradigms, not technically change parents or blame parents. So in that sense, identity for me as the inceptor, and I I think I'd like to talk about this at some point uh, also, um, uh, as a paradigm inceptor, I've never met another paradigm inceptor uh, in my life. Uh, And that's caused me a lot of insanity. Mm. But in that sense, uh, a paradigm, the paradigm of identity wasn't philosophically driven to acute, clearer pictures of paradigmatic substance and expression, it started because I felt the suffering of the world Mm. served insufficiently by philosophical paradigms, by psychological paradigms, by religious paradigms, by New Age paradigms, by Eastern paradigms, by Western paradigms of religion, all furthered human suffering while they were trying to be the cure for human suffering. Yeah. And, and it's the caring for the suffering of humanity that is the core motive for the distinctions that identity makes in paradigms, not to that we enjoy trashing their insufficiency by laughing at their insobriety, 
but by by suffering over how until someone says a, a person who walks with divine being every day until a, a diviner not a religionist but a divinist finally says no that's not how i experience god anything you religious east or west say no god or god um it's all based in caring for the suffering of people, not in being the top smartest guy on the planet who invents a paradigm that can see through all other paradigms. That would be philosophically, mentally, and willfully driven. Mm. And I just want to say everything that we say that negativizes in some way or criticizes other paradigms, our motive is not, not to be clearer or smarter. It's about the the victims of people, the victim, the people victims who suffer at the hands of paradigmatic distortions. Mm. That's our motive. And so it's really important. I wanted to aerate um, all of our, as we go through these and all the paradigmatic distortions and all these now 18 of them, there's, we're going to show paradigmatic distortions in them. Um, and the metaphysics of those paradigms uh, is all driven by caring for human suffering, which you can't transcend you can't atone for, you can't non-dually uh, erase, transcend, transcend yeah. um, and you can't energetically uh, work on it for a lifetime. Uh, mm. It's got to be emoto-soulfully processed. And identity offers all these truths, not as anything for anyone to believe in, but to test for themselves whether or not it feels right to them. Mm. Uh, a cult says, believe this or else. How many of our parents said that to us mm -hmm. directly or not believe me or else obey me or else a paradigm says here's an idea test it that's the difference between a cult and a paradigm and an identity is a paradigm because it doesn't say believe this or else uh it, i used to say that in certain flavored bandwidths uh but it was me about me personally and it infected the paradigm, but I, I got I got I had to learn that one really the hard way. So I just wanted to meta frame everything we say in all these uh, eighteen uh, realizations well, that people get. Yeah, and there's a sort of a hit, part of the hidden gift of identity because it's it. I mean, it really is. I think I can say this as a student of philosophy and spirituality. It is the most comprehensive paradigm that has ever existed in the history of consciousness. It really, that's, that's an easy thing to say because it can talk about so many different things. You know, Christianity can't talk about what Buddhism is talking about. <laughs> they, the three hoods, they, you know, they generally, they can bridge two, almost never three. Kabbalah does a little bit, but not to the yeah. depth again. Just in how much stuff we can talk about, whether you agree with it or whether you think it works, is yeah. a completely separate issue than just right. what it can cover, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And go ahead. I, I love that you say that because in that way, I often describe identity as a meta paradigm for all yeah. the other paradigms. It, right, because right. it, it can explain all of the other paradigms. So, and I can yeah. say this for myself, and I think it was the case for you as well, it, it functioned for both of us as a way to elicit any absolute truthism that might be remaining in us <laughs> exactly. because it's so powerful yeah and it universal it, it's so universal it doesn't yeah. need absolutism yeah uh, but but certainly it's easy for our protector aspects to try to use it yeah. in absolute ways 
Sure. Uh, and I went through a phase of that too. And there, I still sometimes notice bits of it, but uh, not sure. nearly as much as I did before. Um, yeah. And that's that's all part of it too. But that's not the paradigm's fault. No. Uh, <laughs> we, we, when Joseph and I are talking, um, there's no uh, cult of personality here uh, um, that, that's built around either of us. We are devotees of a paradigm ourselves. And we're constantly testing the paradigm for sobriety, looking whether you're conscious of it or not. I know you do this out of your soul integrity. You're always, you would always recognize an inconsistency. And you have done that dozens of times and ask me about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that is what we say to everyone. Be curious. Don't take what we're saying. Don't believe it. Test it and ask questions. Because we don't, we're, we're not, um, um, uh, uh, what is it? Sunday uh, school. <laughs> well, I was, no, was going to say the ones that go around with the Bibles and Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. We're not trying to um, proselytize. We're not trying to get believers. We're not trying to get members. We're trying to introduce the world to a whole new way of looking at everything, everything. And so it's too big. To, it doesn't need absolutism. It just needs um, interest and curiosity. Yeah. If, if all identity did was bring paradigmatic thinking to a small percentage of the world, I would be overjoyed for that. Even if they didn't do a single session with a facilitator, did no emotional work whatsoever, just in the mind, just to be able to think paradigmatically in the mind would transform the world. It would. Um, and if that's, that's why I, I, I never, I never had the illusion that can, can be a delusion for narcissistic um, leaders that this was going to change the world. I think it has the power to change the world and the generations to come. Yeah. But but not not in this one. And that's a beautiful way of saying it. If that one thing happened, uh, that people, a certain percentage of the world, leadership perhaps of the world, mm -hmm. leaders were able to start thinking paradigmatically, they would start deconstructing their own uh, paradigmatic distortions and begin to change and make a new world. But they so, would have to admit that that cookie couldn't yes. cause a wheat allergy if it really turned into, and then poof, like a like a house of cars, all of Christianity could fall down. That's the power of paradigmatic thinking. So also one person would have to go, wait a minute, why are we making gluten-free wafers if the priest is supposedly turning it into something completely different? <laughs> Again, now we're laughing, and that may seem... Um, like we're judging superiorly, but we have to laugh so we don't cry at the I, I suppose when I, I was just as you said, I was trying to feel like where is this laughter coming from? It's not yeah. at the people. It's, it's no. just at the absurdity of the logic. I mean, it's like yes. right. Like I laugh at myself when I'm trying to, you know, cut plywood in a straight line. You know, it's yeah. like oh god, I suck at this. You know, it's yeah. like I'm learning. You know, it's that kind of laughter. It's it's playful and sad and funny and tragic all at the same time yeah we we don't criticize the rank and file the people who no. all people doing the best our criticisms are for the paradigms that govern this world that two without exception none are based on we feel therefore we are hmm. um, and so that's what changes the ball game and makes for all these uh, 18 realizations that we go through when you get into this paradigm so mm -hmm. Just wanted to course correct a little and re reestablish the foundational premises of why 
uh, this paradigm was uh, developed in the first place. And, you know, it's still on my mind that like maybe one day I won't laugh about these kinds of things and I'll only cry. Maybe it's yeah. a medication stopping me from feeling the sorrow of the world. I, I don't know. It's it's every time we do these podcasts, because Stace and I love to laugh about paradigmatic absurdity, there's always in the back of my mind, like, are you laughing? Is that is that not OK? Yeah. And so yeah. I'm still feeling into that all the time. Oh, it's so good. That, that I love that you, that you have the integrity to self-reveal that. Um, I I have a slightly different, um, but it's the same exact same thing. I do cry in sorrow yeah. often, four or five times a month, uh, mm-hmm. at the repercussions of distortive paradigms on the suffering of people, um, and so. I can let my, I merit myself a little yeah. to be able to laugh because I do cry. Um, so it's a, that's a sobering question to um, ask yourself and it's the right one. And I know you and I know that um, you suffer. Uh, in your uh, yeah, I definitely way. do. I think I could, I could feel more sorrow about it for sure. sure. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm feeling all of it. So there's more there. Um, Me too. I, I could say maybe I feel half or 60% of what I could. And expressing sorrow in a podcast is probably less fun than for listeners than laughing. So there's that. I am an entertainer somewhere in at heart. So there's that as well. That's a good yeah. truth and service, right? <laughs> yeah, you. We, we, both, we both like to be on stage. We do. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason for that because that was what we signed up to be this lifetime. And when our, you our, said that, something in me said, oh, fuck. Yeah. 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 So, but we like to do it in less risky ways uh, than the way we're heading toward, right? Uh, you know what kind of humility it takes to say this is a meta paradigm that could change the world in future generations? That's either megalomania, utterly delusional, or ask yeah. some questions and see if that what's true. And, yeah, and sometimes I know I, I'm holding it at least pretty cleanly because I'll be teaching a group and they'll be in the voice back in my mind. I'll start to go into some territory I've not risked before. And the voice is like, I can't believe you're trying to say this stuff right now. I can't believe you're actually, people are nodding. Are you kidding me? They should be walking off and outraged. They should be swearing at you. You're right. tearing down their paradigms. And no, I'm just trying to talk about how it looks to me with a lot of love and Thank God yeah. they're not freaking out. It's it's terrifying sometimes. Really. Well, I'm happy that you have that experience. Uh, that's a lot more than I had in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that's another whole story. But at any rate, this was lovely today, Joseph. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Stacey. I know we're both going through some personal stuff right now that's challenging. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet, somehow, always, I, I make up in my heart and I'll say this patently to close, uh, that um, what I always feel with you is that you get more consciousness room from these podcasts, not less. Oh, hell yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's why even if we, we, we Joseph and I both question, am I going to, we do want to have our fun podcast today to cover something we, we don't want to feel. Yeah. We, we talked about that. Variety. We, mm-hmm. we do that. We look, we talk about that before we, the camera started rolling. So yeah, we, uh, we went with uh, 55 for me, we determined it was 55, 45 healthy versus unhealthy. So we went with it. And after having done it for an hour and a half, yeah, it feels like it, it, it didn't make everything better. I don't feel high. I feel a little more sorrow and a little more sober. So I think it was good for me. Sorrow and sober. Wow, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good one, pal.
Yeah. All right. Thank you, Stace. Thank you, listeners. Well, Tune in next time. We'll be talking about uh, that you're missing out on the vast majority of reality on emotional and spiritual levels. At least whoa. we think yeah. that's what we're going to talk about. We'll see. <laughs> we'll start with it. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey.